Our series is called Words to Live By, which is based on Jesus' teachings in the book of Matthew. And uh, I've discovered that uh, preaching through an interpreter in different parts of the world has taught me the importance and the significance of words. My sermons have been interpreted in Spanish, Polish, Thai, uh, Punjabi. Uh, I once preached through an interpreter in a large church in Rwanda, and the crux of my sermon rested on to, to, to signify and illustrate the, the, the crucial part of my message. It, it rested on a story of eating a meal of pierogies. And uh, I won't go into details here, but it was a very good story that illustrated a significant point in my sermon. And as I got into my story in, in, this, in this church, and I started to tell uh, this, this story, um, my Rwandan interpreter looked at me, and he, he stopped, and he, he had the mic, and he, he kind of said, like, ah, what? What's a pierogi? And, um, and so there I stood in front of 2,000 people having this little conversation with my interpreter to try to describe the cuisine and culinary delights of pierogies. And um, I began to describe to him, and, and I soon discovered that there was no such word for pierogi in Kenya, Rwanda, because no such food existed in the Rwandan culture. And so uh, I tried to explain to him the little, the joy of these little filled dumplings with uh, cheese and sauerkraut that are fried in onions and, and, and topped in sour cream and all this goodness. And he, he looked at me and, you know, a minute goes by in that, and it feels like an hour when everybody's watching you, and I'm trying to have this conversation. And I knew that things were not going good because he said, what is sauerkraut? And then he said, and why would anybody want to put cream that has gone sour on top of their food? And I knew that it, that it was done. I had lost the moment. And so I quickly shifted gears and tried to go on in my sermon and tried to rescue it from its failing place that it was and to salvage it into something. And I learned a few things that day, that no sermon should ever rely on a story of pierogies to make theological sense. And uh, I needed to pick up my preaching game. And uh, I will never preach through an interpreter again without first having them check all of my words to ensure they make sense. Because words matter. They carry so much significance and meaning. They can cut, they can build up, they can tear down, they can encourage, they bring life, they bring death, they bring curse, they bring hope. Uh, we use phrases like water under the bridge or it takes two to tango or there's two sides to every coin or the straw that broke the camel's back, or it's best to let sleeping dogs lie. We've got all these cultural idioms that at best have some elements of wisdom, but that's about as far as they go. And this is important because Jesus' words are words of life. Jesus' words are words to build our life upon. They are words with weight, words with consequence, words to pay attention to. And today we're looking at Jesus' words in the book of Matthew chapter 6 as we carry on our series. Matthew 6, 5 says this, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, 
for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street uh, corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And again, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And my message today is called, Words to Live By When You Pray. This idea of Jesus, when you pray, He uses it three times in this passage leading up to the Lord's Prayer. Now remember, Jesus is a rabbi, and the majority of the people who are hearing him, the majority of the people who follow him around, and this is the Sermon on the Mount, there's a large crowd of people who are surrounding Jesus, they're Jewish. Jesus is a rabbi, they're Jewish, they are well acquainted, well accustomed to the rituals and the practices of saying daily prayers. That's a rhythm in their life. And Jesus focuses less on their actual need to pray because there's this assumption or this knowledge that they already are. And he tries to bring in more direction on how to best pray. And this is something that we would pay attention to. A 2016 Angus Reid study in Canada shows that fewer than 20% of Canadians pray on a regular basis. And that does not distinguish between uh, Muslims or Buddhists or Christians. It's just how many people in Canada participate in regular prayer. It's not very high. And so if Jesus stood on Dilworth Mountain today, he might not start his lesson by saying, when you pray, this is how you should do it. But perhaps it's important you make room in your life for the rhythm of prayer. And here's an example of how to do it. And so the words, when you pray, communicate that regular prayer is a natural expression, a natural part of what it means to follow the way of Jesus. There are many practical benefits to regular prayer that I won't go into in this message other than to say prayer is the basis of relationship with God. Regular prayer is regular connection with Jesus. It's how we welcome Him into the everyday moments of our lives, thus gaining and welcoming His perspective and spiritual strength for our lives. And if you'd like to strengthen this spiritual practice in your own life, if maybe this is an area you need some encouragement to develop this rhythm of prayer, we have provided a download on our website. You can go and find it there. It's a one-page, one-and-a-half-page PDF download that gives you some practical guides on how to develop and step into the practice and the rhythm of regular prayer. And this is something that if, if we didn't do anything else today other than that, if you would go home and you would take that and, and engage in that and begin to kind of just start where you're at in that practice, we would be much further ahead. And so that's available for you to, uh, to step into that practice and learn a little bit more. But I want to take a deeper look at the Lord's Prayer, which is really part of this whole passage where Jesus is giving this address, because there are deeper words, there are words to live by contained in this passage. So Matthew 6, 9, 13 says this, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. 
and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Uh, I realized uh, when I was talking about this message this past week with Pastor Oliver how quickly we revert to King James language when we think of the Lord's Prayer because it's what so many of us learned and were accustomed to. And this is looking at the NIV and some of the NLT versions of this. Uh, scholars point out that the actual Lord's Prayer is quite simple. And from a prayer alone, it can be said in less than a minute. It's easy to memorize. And the idea here, as scholars look at this, is it's less a prayer that is to be repeated word for word and more a prayer that is to serve as a guide for understanding the themes and the elements and the dimensions of prayer and the different aspects of fostering prayer in the presence of Jesus. And most of us, the Lord's Prayer is not new material. So it's my hope that today you will gain a renewed appreciation for the full weight of these simple yet profound words to live by. The Lord's Prayer is best understood as welcoming the kingdom of God to earth as it is in heaven. And this is a key part of what the Lord's Prayer contains. It's how Jesus starts. And so we have to ask the question, what is the kingdom of God? And there are three primary definitions to the kingdom of God. We use this term a lot at church, and in my preaching, I use the kingdom of God a lot. It's a growing concept, growing idea, growing conviction in my own life, in my own heart. And people sometimes ask, well, what is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? How do you describe it? And there are, there are three primary definitions that all fit uh, together to form a larger definition, but on their own they are a biblically accurate understanding of the kingdom of God. And so the first is this. It's an eschatological kingdom. It's a big word. It's, this is most often thought of as heaven in eternity. Eschatological is this idea of end times. And so we understand there's this future kingdom that follows the end times, the final judgment, the new heaven, the new earth, uh, you know, the, the complete work of God, the end of the book, the end of Revelation, this idea of this completed work is establishing the eschatological kingdom of God. And um, some scholars believe that this is instructing us to pray for this final work of God to take place and to happen in the story of humanity. But this doesn't fit on all levels because Jesus is just at the very beginning of his ministry. This is like the very, very front of his ministry. There's so much more yet that he needs to teach and, 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 and share. There's so much more he needs to minister. There's the, the cross. There's the resurrection. There's the Last Supper. There's all these important elements, and all these things have to happen. And so uh, a lot of scholars would think that maybe this, that idea of the kingdom here, when he says, thy kingdom come, is not necessarily speaking of that eternal kingdom in that respect. And the majority of what Jesus does in his life and ministry is actually in preparation for that to come. And there's another view of the kingdom of God, which is known as the existential kingdom. This is the idea that Jesus lives in my heart. The kingdom of God exists in the lives of those who follow Jesus, who welcome his lordship and his rule into their lives. That's where the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is within. And although this is a good definition of the kingdom, 
it is again perhaps not the most fitting for this specific scripture. Because we don't see Jesus praying, thy kingdom come to our hearts. Thy kingdom come to my soul. We don't see Jesus saying, may his will be done in my mind or my spirit as it is in heaven. This is God's kingdom coming to earth. May his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' words seem to indicate the kingdom of God comes to our physical world with the same power and authority that it enjoys in the heavenly places. Well, the third definition and understanding of kingdom of God from a biblical perspective is described as the cosmic kingdom. And this is, this is understood as the cosmic collision between the kingdom of God coming into and encountering and combining with the physical earth, where there's different kinds of kingdoms, rulers and authorities. And it's this idea of, of the two coming into this encounter. It's made possible in the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is when Jesus overthrows the power of sin and darkness, overthrows the hold of the devil on the earth, and realigns things, repurposes things. This is the idea of, of Jesus being the cosmic Christ, which means he is the Lord of all, not only in the heavenly places, but in the physical earth and in our lives here. And this idea is perhaps the most fitting way to understand Jesus' prayer for the kingdom to come to earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is not just a future place in eternity, and the kingdom of God is not just my heart and my soul where I believe in Jesus. The kingdom is the rule and authority of Jesus, coming to our world in the same authority as it is in heaven. And this is the adventure that we participate in. The Amazon River is quite amazing. It carries one-fifth of the world's fresh water. And the Amazon River dilutes the salt water of the Atlantic Ocean up to 100 miles off of its mouth. And it creates this liminal ecosystem, this in-between space where fresh water washes in and joins in and intermixes with the salt water from the ocean. And there's a unique ecosystem in this area that doesn't exist anywhere else. Unique plants, unique wildlife, unique sea life. And what happens is there's this, this mixing together. And this is a good picture of how the kingdom of God comes, of understanding the cosmic kingdom. Because the kingdom of God coexists in a fallen world. And we're in this in-between. We're in this liminal space, this mixing together. Jesus has conquered the devil. He's freed humanity from the curse of sin. But we still live in a fallen world where sin and principalities of darkness are still active. And theologians call this the already but not yet kingdom of God. Dr. George Ladd of Fuller Theological Seminary was one of the first theologians to dedicate extensive study to this. And uh, this is what he says about this, this um, already but not yet nature of God's kingdom. The early church found itself living in a tension between realization and expectation, between already and not yet. The age of fulfillment has come with Jesus, but the full realization of that promise yet stands in the future. And this is how we understand the kingdom of God in our life in this way. 
So remember, the gospel in the Greek language means the special announcement of a change in leadership. And the stories found in the gospels are the living announcement that Jesus is establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The gospels are an invitation for you and I as the followers of the way of Jesus. So we follow who Jesus is. Jesus spends his ministry investing in the lives of others, performing miracles, preaching the good news, leading people to him, establishing his kingdom, and we are to follow Jesus in this way. We are to follow Jesus in welcoming, ushering, hosting, facilitating, participating in his work to welcome his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And everything that we see Jesus say and do in the Gospels is an act of him establishing this work. Thy kingdom come, in the King James classical version, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how we pray. This is what the Lord's prayer is about. It's about posturing our lives into a place where the kingdom of God, the will of God, the purposes of God become activated in our life. So as followers of the way, how do we experience God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven? Well, the first I would suggest is this from the the Lord's Prayer is our present moments. Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. Most scholars, many scholars believe that Jesus' main emphasis is on the bread. Some believe that the bread could represent physical bread. It could represent our physical needs for life, food, clothing, shelter. Some would believe that the bread is signifying spiritual food. We do not live by by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And there's lots of different perspectives on the bread and what is it and what does it mean, but could it be that the emphasis is less on what the bread is as much as the fact that it is our daily bread? Maybe that's the emphasis. Regardless of whether it's literal bread, symbolic of the larger necessities of life, or representative of spiritual food, or a little bit of all of the above, the truth and the spiritual truth here is the same. We need them all on a daily basis. Perhaps the bigger prayer Jesus is guiding us in is welcoming his kingdom, welcoming his presence into the very present moments of our everyday life. Give us this day our daily bread is a prayer to make Jesus the source of our life because we need him in every way, every day. It is to welcome Jesus into every scenario, every challenge, every moment, everything, every blessing that you have. Another perspective of this and another way the things that Jesus is praying is in not only just our present moments, but our past experiences. Jesus says, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Jesus instructs us to seek God's forgiveness of our sins, our past sins, and to accept this idea that we are to forgive others who have sinned against us. Forgiveness is the doorway 
to welcoming Jesus' healing into our past. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is the doorway of welcoming the kingdom of God into your past. Not to change the past, but to change how the past controls us moving forward. Pastor Bill Johnson says, don't let your past dictate your future. There's something to be said there. In fact, in the Greek language, the word for forgive, forgiveness is aphiemi. And aphiemi is literally translated as lay aside, release, let go, put down, leave behind. Have you ever, have you ever met someone who's gone through life carrying around guilt and shame of their past? You're going to think I am like super strong. I stole this out of Evangel's prop room earlier in the week, and um, I had to do some touch-ups on it. But have, have you ever met somebody who carries around the shame and the pain and the problems of the past? Have you ever met somebody who carries around the hurts, the injustice, the wrongs that have been said, the, the hurtful words? the unfair words, and you, for some reason, we, I don't know why, but we like to hold on to the past. Holding on to the past is like getting up in the morning and putting on a big weight and carrying it around everywhere you go. You try going through Save-On carrying this thing. <laughs> try going out for dinner. Uh, just a table for two, but I'll need another bench because I got my baggage. I got my stuff. We bring our shame we bring our hurts, our bitterness, our resentment, our unforgiveness, our wounds. We bring it with us everywhere we go. We carry this everywhere. We get up in the morning, the first thing we do is we lift it up. And we bring it to breakfast, and we bring it to every relationship, and we bring it to every test, every trial, every workplace conversation. It rides around with us in the back seat, and when we stop, we get out, we grab it, and we carry it with us. This is the influence of the past over our future life. And Jesus says, if you want to be free of this, if you want to welcome the kingdom of God into your past, it comes through forgiveness. It comes by receiving the forgiveness of Christ on your own life, and it comes by you extending forgiveness to others. And what we do is we learn to set it down. We learn to leave it behind. We unload it. This is what forgiveness means. This is the picture of forgiveness in the Greek language. Those hurts from others, those painful words, the lies, the disappointments... Forgiveness is an act of surrendering those unjust moments. It's an act of letting go of those things. Lewis Meads writes, To forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that that prisoner was you. Because we're the one that gets up every day and carries that around. And sometimes it's so hard, I don't know why, I don't know why we're wired this way. It's so hard for us to let go 
of the past. It's so hard for us to let go of the shame and the experiences and the disappointments and the patterns and the hurts. The hurts. But if we let go, if we, if we say, Jesus, forgive us, forgive me of my sins, and that I may forgive others, we are welcoming Jesus, we are welcoming his kingdom into our past so that he can set us free, so that we can continue forward into a life unhindered, uninhibited by the experiences that we've had. I'm going to invite the band to come as we get ready to wind up today. The other idea that comes from the Lord's Prayer is in the next line where it really speaks of our future opportunities. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is a prayer of welcoming Jesus into a future filled with opportunities. Opportunities of his leading, opportunities of his provision, his blessing, his help, his covering. Rather than viewing our future as left to chance or afraid of the evil forces that may stand against us, this is a posture of trusting in Jesus to guide us. This is a posture of strength, of looking at the future and saying, Jesus, you hold the future. I put my hope and my trust in you. We're surrounded by negative stories on both a global and local level. And I was thinking through, maybe I should talk about some of those things, and I just didn't want to. Like the news and the media and the world, is just, it's full of negativity. We're all aware of this stuff going on in the world around us. And it's easy to let fear and uncertainty get the better of us. It's easier to let hope diminish and let worry and anxiety come on. And I want to encourage you in the words of 1 John 4, 4, which says, greater is Jesus who is in us than the one who is in the world. We hope in Jesus. Our futures are uncertain, and there are so many worst-case scenarios. Those who wrestle with anxiety and struggle with chronic anxiety know how easy it is to just focus on the actual worst possible outcome in every situation. And it, it's, it's easy to get there. It's easy to get our eyes on those things. There's this cultural idiom that would say, I can't control the future, but I know the one who does. Which really summarizes, I think, so much of Jesus and his ministry. Kind of paraphrases, actually, experiencing the kingdom of God. We don't know. We're not in control of the future. There's a lot of things that can happen. There's a lot of things that can come our way. There's still a lot of uncertainty. I wait every day for Dr. Bonnie Henry to say, you can take your masks off. You can open the doors. You can get back to, you know, life and church and ministry. And I, I wait for all those things to come. I can't control the future. I put my hope in Jesus. We keep going. We keep leading. We all do that, I think, in so many different ways. Barb and Taylor welcomed Micah into the world in a crazy moment of our world. How good it is to see the kingdom of God at work, creation, life, blessing, purposes. Because in the darkest moments, in the most discouraging moments, there is hope because Jesus is in those moments.
lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, is to say, Jesus, would you come into my future? Would you lead me? I put my trust, my hope in you. Lead me, not the enemy. I don't want to be afraid of the enemy. It's not about the enemy. and I, you, I'm set free from that. Greater is he who is in me than the one that is in the world. And that is who I put my hope in. You see, the Lord's prayer is really a way of welcoming the kingdom of God into the very present moments of our life. It's about welcoming God into our past experiences. It's about welcoming God into our future opportunities. It's a posture of saying, Jesus, you're in control. You are God. You are the creator. This is your kingdom. And I am a part of it. 